Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. And uh, we're using a river as our metaphor to understand how we might uh, change spiritually and grow spiritually. And we're starting where every river starts, and that is at the headwaters. And the headwaters, as it were, for a Christian is faith in Jesus. We looked at Galatians last week and examined uh, this truth, that it's faith alone in Jesus alone that justifies us. And today, we're going to examine the same truth, but from a, a slightly different vantage point. And you say, well, I wasn't here last week. What is that same truth? The truth is that you can only be justified. You can only have right standing with God. You can only have your sins forgiven by faith alone in Jesus alone. And that is contrasted to the works of the law or the good deeds that we would do ourselves, that that is a fool's errand that will not work, and it will only work through faith in Jesus. And we get to hear uh, the same author, Paul, write in Romans as he did in Galatians, but give us a slightly different angle on this. And today we're just calling this New Days Old Doctrine. And you're going to see how this plan of salvation and justification has been around for a long, long time, even though it may be news to you. So Romans chapter number four, we're going to see first faith explained to us, and then we're going to see that faith can be experienced by us. So let's examine first the idea that faith is explained to us. Romans 4.1 what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Question mark. Abraham, our forefather, what did he find? What was it that this guy discovered? What was it that this guy gained? What was it? And the answer you'll see in just a minute is justification. That someone who is viewed as wrong is now viewed as right. Here it is, verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So what he's saying is if this was by works, if Abraham received justification and God viewed him as righteous, and that was by works, he would have something that he could brag about. But we know that nobody is going to brag about something before God. Like you're not going to stand before an eternal, almighty, holy God and give yourself a pat on the back and talk about all the good deeds you did as though you were awesome. That's not going to happen. Justification, salvation does not happen by our works. Ephesians echoes this same sentiment that we by grace are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Both have the idea that if we contributed to the project, then we would have some sort of boasting or glory, and we could say it was a team project, we did it, and it's like, no, 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 you didn't do it, Jesus did it for you. Jesus is doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, and he is forgiving your sins, he is saving you, he is the one who is justifying you. Verse 3, for what saith the Scripture? 
What did the scripture say? Well, Genesis told us this. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. His justification came. His righteousness came. His right standing with God came. How? How was it that God was able to see him as right, not wrong. Verse number one, what was it that Abraham found? How did he, how did he pull this off? Abe, how did you do it? He believed, is what it says. You see that word? He believed God. Verse four, now unto him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you are working to earn something, and then you get that something, it is not graciousness that gives it to you, it is your effort, and you are owed it. If you agree with a contractor on a price of $10,000 to put a deck on the back of your house, and he does the work, and he does quality work, and he puts the deck on the back of your house to the specifications you laid out, you owe him $10,000. You are not gracious to give him $10,000. That's not graciousness. He doesn't owe you a thank you. You owe him money because he did work. And this is saying if we earned or worked our way to salvation or justification, then this isn't of grace. This, this would actually, if we were earning this, it would do damage to the grace of God. We saw that last week in Galatians that Paul said, I don't frustrate the grace of God and make this about works. I am not going to diminish or belittle or shrink the grace of God by me trying to earn it. I actually, when I humbly accept it as a gift freely, I am actually magnifying the grace of God and it's this grace that comes to me and now there is produced in me a heart of gratitude and a heart of love, which God is after. Because it is all of grace and strictly just through my faith in Jesus and I'm, I'm not doing anything, then I can praise him for his grace, then his glory really shines brighter and now I can say thank you that I got to receive this and I can serve him out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of you owe me something. So the argument is that this makes sense for us and for God that justification would be strictly by faith alone. And we'll see in a minute in Jesus alone, verse five, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. We have to remember that when we put our faith in Jesus, we also repent of our sins. God is justifying me because I am wrong. I am, quote unquote, ungodly. And it is our faith that is counted for righteousness. Justification comes by faith alone, as we'll see in Jesus alone. Now, some would naturally say, well, I've read my Bible enough, and I see all this justification by faith alone, and Abraham was justified by faith alone, according to Paul, but didn't James say that like, quote, we're justified or even Abraham was justified by works and that faith without works is dead. And James did say that. Well, aren't these opposite? He says you're justified by faith. He says you're justified by works. And no, they're not opposite. They're explaining this, the two sides of the same coin. 
The progression biblically is always that you would put your faith in Jesus, that God would justify you, you in turn would receive forgiveness of sins, you would receive eternal life, you would receive a home in heaven, this would produce gratitude and joy in you, and that would spur you on to live a life of good works. That if there is true saving faith, it will eventually result in good works. Good tree, good fruit, that's what will happen. We even see this in Ephesians where there's this big hubbub about we're saved by grace alone. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it immediately goes on to say that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I think that Calvin summed it up so beautifully when he said it is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. It will bring with it good works, and that will naturally be a progression that happens in our lives, but we are not saved by our works. We are justified by our faith alone, but a litmus test for if someone actually has saving faith is, is this producing a life of godliness in them? That is a fair litmus test. But the point that is being pounded home is that we don't work for this, we don't earn this. We trust God for this. There is this, this, as some would say, I've heard many pastors say, this internal conviction that leads to an external action. I believe and I'm justified, and so now I live for God. But then he's going to go on to use Abraham as a prototype, the prototype really, to explain further to us how this happened in Abraham's life and how is it accessible to us. Verse number 18, you get just a, a really cliff note version, high level of Abraham's story. Abraham, against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that when what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him or it was credited unto him for righteousness. This is telling you the really high-level story of Abraham. Verse 18 talks of God coming to Abraham and promising Abraham that I will bless you. I'll even bless them that bless you, and I'm going to make a, a many nations out of you, and your seed are going to be as the stars in heaven or as the sand of the seashore. And it's taking us back to kind of the inception of Abraham's faith journey where God comes and he calls Abraham and begins to make promises to him. And Abraham is 75 at the time. Now let this sink in for a minute. Abraham's like journey of faith begins at age 75, where God says, hey, leave your country. Where are we going? Trust me. How long is it going to take to get there? Trust me. How much food should I pay? Trust me. Am I going to come back for the holiday? Trust me. Get your stuff and leave. All right, raise of hands. Who is in your 70s-ish? You're kind of in that stage of life. Raise of hands here, okay? Keep your hand up if you want to start over. Anybody? 
Anybody like, yes, I would love to do that at 75. I would love to leave my family. I would love to leave everything. I would like to start over. And I would like just to launch out, clean slate, brand new, trust God at age 75. That's a step of faith. He's not a 20-something. He's not young with all this future ahead of him and, and all of this, you know, male energy surging and I'm just ready to go. Give me something to do. I want to be wild. No, he's 75 years old, which is a tremendous lesson to you if you are the quote unquote uh, senior saint. And I'll let you categorize yourself if you qualify as senior saint. But if you're a senior saint, no, God still has a plan for you and God still wants to use you. As a young man, I am willing to admit I and we need you in the fight if you're older. I understand that your financial advisor is telling you to scale it back and to play it safe and pull out of those riskier stocks that were high risk, high reward when you were younger and start to invest in some safer stuff and put it in the CD and just start to live off of it and to play it safe. I understand that your children are telling you to scale back and maybe not do as much and take a break and maybe don't drive at night or whatever it may be, which is fine. I'm not saying that those are even bad pieces of, of advice necessarily, but I am saying don't scale it back in relation to your faith. Now, now's not the time for you to start to play it safe and for you to start to say, you know what, I'll, I'll pray a little less, I'll be involved a little less, I'll serve a little less. Now is not the time for that. Level up, keep the faith, keep going. I understand that, that you may have to change some things of like, I used to serve in the toddler section of the nursery, it kills my back now, I'm going over to the infant side. Fine. But don't stop, don't stop living a life of faith because you retired from your job. Put more in, live a life of faith. Die with your boots on. Abraham's 75 and he's willing to go. He's willing to trust God even at that age. And then it begins to elaborate on the birth story of Isaac. How that Abraham, he was 99, the text says almost 100. Almost 100 years old, Sarah is 90 years old. And along comes Isaac, the promised one, the, the blessed one. The one that it seemed impossible that God would possibly give a son at that age. I mean, think of 99 and 90. Like you're in a unique stage of parenting when your Walmart list is pampers for the infant and depends for you. Like that's a, that's a unique stage. And here they are about to have a baby, right? And the text said, he could have considered his body as good as dead. I don't know if you saw that when we read it. Could have considered Sarah's womb as good as dead. Her womb has been a tomb the whole time anyway. But he doesn't stagger at the promises of God. And he believes God and he trusts God. And he lives by faith that God can do this. It's almost as if he knew the words that Jesus was were going to speak years later, that with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, that God is in the miracle working business. He can do whatever he wants, and he trusts him. And then there's this like wrinkle along the way in relationship to Isaac and the birth story that we don't spend a lot of time on, but I think it's worth considering. In Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham I am going to bless you, and I am, I am good on my promises, and you are going to have a son. You're going to have this, this, these descendants. 
But I need you to do one more thing for me before we have a kid. What's that? It's this brand new medical procedure that we got going. You're going to be the first one. Sweet. Like you got some angel wings to, to install on me or something? Nope. You got some adamantium for my, for my bones and be like Wolverine or something? Like what? No, it's more of a subtraction than an addition, buddy. It's, uh, it's, it's called circumcision. Circa, circa what? Circumcision. It, tell me about it. Wow. Da, 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 da. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, think it through. Uh, we, we, you going to give me some lidocaine? No, that hasn't been invented yet, pal. You, you, how, I got, God, how about, how about you go first, okay? You give me the kid, then I'll do the procedure. How about, how about we do it that way? No, trust me. Trust me in every way. Whew. Oh, hey, Abraham, one more thing. Um, yeah. Uh, all the guys that work for you, like, you know, the sheep herders and the people that fix the fences and tear down the tents and make the food, like your whole, your whole entourage, they all need to get circumcised too, okay? Like, can you imagine that staff meeting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, think they had to have this conversation. Like, it's Tuesday, and he's like, Jacob, we got to go fix the fence, buddy. You know, that it's, it's, you know, get it, get, it, get it fixed. Dave, move the sheep to the southern pasture. One more thing, team. Uh, Friday night, my place, team building exercise, okay? Uh, bring your knives. It's going to be unbelievable. You're going to, like, that, that's, that's crazy. That staggering not the promises of God. Like, do this. Like, I don't know what all the questions I'll have for Abraham when I get to heaven, but for sure, towards the top of my list is going to be like, Abraham, when you told your dudes, how many of them gave you their two weeks? Because if it's less than 50%, my man's the greatest leader in the history of the world. Like, if I'm on his team, I'm quitting. Like, I, have, I know my job description said, like, other responsibilities as assigned by your boss, but I didn't sign up for this. I'm out. I'm going to a different company. Like, the faith that was required for him to trust God in every situation of his life. But what does, what does his faith do? He obeys, which is always a tremendous litmus test for if you actually have faith. Are you obeying the knowledge you already have? I want to walk in faith. I want to, I want to, I want to walk on the water. I, I, want, I, want a, I want an angel to come. I want to do what you already know. Start there. Do you have enough faith to obey the clear word of God where he's already told you, but I need new faith. Show me the future. Show me that. No, do what he already said. I have faith, huge faith, Abrahamic faith. You, do you tithe? Well, no. I mean, duh, like that's, that's a little too much. Not my finances. Help me compute that. Help me figure that one out. Abraham has faith to trust God with a 90-year-old barren womb, and God can do a miracle, but you can't trust him with 90% of your income. I don't check. Well, I, I need more money. You don't need more money. You need more faith. That's what you need. There are so many practical ways where God has said, do this, obey me. I know it doesn't necessarily make sense on paper. I know you may not want to. I know it may be uncomfortable. Read Genesis 17 if you think I'm exaggerating the story, and you can see the whole episode. Uncomfort would be the headline for the whole thing. Or discomfort may be the word. I don't know uncomfort's a word. 
but he trusts him. He obeys him. He follows him through the process. You say, well, man, that's Abraham. You know, he's a superhero of the faith. That's not me. Listen, he's not perfect. Abraham had his issues. Well, God used Abraham, but I don't know, me and my past. I don't know if he used me. Listen, we don't know a lot about Abraham's past, but we know that God calls him out at age 75. And, and we know a little bit about his daddy and where they moved to and just some, some real brief little snippets about his life. But best we know, he was just an average pagan dude who God called out. You think there's some closet and, and, or some skeletons in that 75-year-old closet? I bet there are. Well, I don't know God can use me like, like he would in Abraham or something. You don't, you don't know my marriage. Look at Abraham's marriage. And I'm not talking pre-faith in God. I'm, I'm talking post-faith in God. My man gave his wife away to another dude twice. Twice. Twice they went into a foreign city, and Abraham walked in there like the world's biggest coward, and before they got there, said, hey, baby, take your ring off your finger. Let's put it in our pocket. While we're in this city, we're brother and sister. We're no longer husband and wife. Why? I'm kind of scared we're going to get here and some people are going to think you're pretty and they're going to want you and they're, they're going to be willing to hurt me to get to you. So let's just not do that whole thing. I really don't want to like, I don't want to fight anybody. I'm old. So let's, let's just like not do that and you just be my sister. And guess what? It wasn't a disaster fantasy where he thought, oh, maybe someone will, will want this woman. It came true. And what does he do? He gives her away. Now think about that. If you were brother and sister, you're the worst big brother ever. All right? So, I mean, like, we're all, all of us guys, I think we can compute this. Like, if you're in an alley and somebody jumps out and you're like, take my wallet, don't hurt me, fine. Take my car keys, don't hurt me, fine. Take my sister, take my children, take my wife, don't hurt me, not fine. Right? You can't do that. That's not allowed. That is in the bro code. You, you, you got to take the bullet. You can't do that. That's what he does. Take her. And then God has to swoop in and salvage the whole thing and undo his mess. And then he does it again. How many of you women are like, I would have left him after the first time. I would have been out. I would have been gone. Like if I'm Sarah and we're going to another new city, and he's like, hey, let me see your ring for a second. I'm like, no, you fool me once, shame on me. But same song, second verse, man. I already took a ride on this train. I'm not doing this again. But he does it again. Then, of course, there's probably the most infamous episode in the middle of his faith journey. You tell me, what, what's Abraham's perhaps biggest blunder? Hagar. One was brave enough to say it, Hagar. That was his wife's idea, to be fair, but nevertheless, bad idea. You call that faith? Was that a faith moment? It, it, that's not a faith moment at all. Abraham, I know God said he was going to show up. I know he said he was going to give us a kid, but I mean, sheesh, it's been a minute. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how he's going to do this. Listen. You know, we got Hagar, you know, the, little, the servant girl from Egypt. I'm maybe just like take her. She can be your girlfriend, wife. Maybe have a baby with her. Is Abraham a man of faith, leading his family well in those moments? 
No. Well, whatever can you disturb the family, baby? I mean, you, 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 okay. He goes with it. And, and guys, guys know a girlfriend never solves the problem, okay? <laughs> like, just learn from Abraham. I don't know what marital tension you have. I don't, I don't know what's happening. But a girlfriend only makes it worse. That doesn't work. But here goes. And, of course, she does get pregnant. And here comes Ishmael. But that was not God's plan. So now you have older, barren, wife of many years, and then you have young, cute, fertile, just had the baby I always want, and you're all living in the same house. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. Like, Maury Povich and Jerry Springer are going to call you and want you on their show. Like, that's, that's not good. Then Sarah gets pregnant. And then you thought the tension was bad before. I mean, baby mama drama is everywhere. It's everywhere. And Abraham's like, I can't live like this. So out Hagar goes into the night. Maybe it was day, I don't know. But there she goes, booted her, booted Ishmael. And God puts his hand on them and says, I'm going to take care of you. And nations are going to come from you as well. But here are these moments that are colossal failures. I mean, what a missed opportunity for Abraham when she comes to him and tells him, hey, here's Hagar, here's this harebrained idea. What a, what a chance for him to step up and to lead his family by faith and to say like, babe, are you high? What are you doing? I, I don't know where you came up with this, but listen, girl, it is me and you. It is ride or die for life. Like, I don't know how God's going to show up, but I know he's going to show up, and I know he's going to show out. And I don't know when he's coming, but I trust his power, and I trust his promises. I know he will deliver. I know he will come through. Hang in there. Keep the faith. Don't jump ship. I mean, what a chance for him to lead his family in faith, but he completely fails that test. And because of it, now you have this man who on the whole lived an incredible life of faith and you see the ripple effects from his good decisions and his trust in God and you see the Jewish people and you see Jesus from that line, you see the Messiah, you see all the nations being blessed, you see all the promises coming to fruition, but on the same hand, you have these other ripple effects from all these negative choices that he made. And, and not just for generations, like for millennia, to this day, there's still rockets being lobbed on either side of the border. Where does that all stem from? It stems from Isaac, the son of the promise, and then Ishmael, who is seen to be the son of the promise, and the Jewish people, and now those that basically would claim Islamic faith, and all these nations that for so long have been added. It stems from Abraham having a lack of faith sometimes. And here's the point. The point is not that Abraham was perfect. The point is not that you can't embrace his same faith. It's the opposite of that. It's that you can have faith. That Abraham was justified by his faith, and you can be justified by your faith. Verse 5 told us in no uncertain terms, God justifies the ungodly. That is talking about you, and that is talking about me, and that was talking about Abraham. None of us are righteous on our own. And every single one of us from Abraham on needed to be justified by our faith. And if you think that I'm making that up, this is basically what the text tells you. If you get down to verse number 23... 
that this same faith can be experienced by us, that Abraham was a prototype. Now, it was written, not written, for his sake alone. Well, what is this thing that was written, not for his sake alone? That it was imputed unto him. And that's a really short way. It's an abbreviation of that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. This whole concept that we are given righteousness freely as a gift by the grace of God, just through our faith, is something that wasn't just for Abraham's sake, verse 24, but for us also. For us. To whom it shall be imputed, the same righteousness, the same justification. If we believe, what do we believe? We believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who Jesus was delivered for our offenses, and who Jesus was raised again for our justification. You know what it's saying? New days, old doctrine. New days for you and me, but this was written for us. That old doctrine and this principle that we are justified by our faith alone was there to serve us so that we can have a window into how we too are, in, are justified. And we get righteousness on our account only by believing on the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who was delivered for our transgressions or died on a cross for our sins and was raised from the dead in victory. Now that same justification is available to us if we put our faith alone in Jesus alone. That's the principle. And that's what we're celebrating. That is not works. That is not something you get to boast about. That is not something that you earn. Don't even try to. It is something that is given to you, and then you serve God out of gladness freely because of his gift of justification. So here's the point. I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again. First of all, if you have not ever put your faith in Jesus alone. I'm not saying you've never had any faith. I'm not saying you've never believed on Jesus or that you somehow thought that it was a myth and that he never died on a cross. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you've never put your faith in Jesus alone. Do that. We know for certain there will be many people that will get to heaven and they will have a dramatically negative surprise in store because they will say, we had some faith in you, we served you, we did stuff in your name, but they never began at the headwaters. Words of Jesus, some of the scariest verses in all the Bible. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Didn't we cast out some devils in your name? Didn't we do a bunch of stuff in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Sheesh. How can I be sure those words are not uttered in my direction? There is only one way. You put your faith alone in Jesus alone. Then you can count on the promises of God just as sure as Abraham did, that I am justified, that I am viewed as right, that my sins are forgiven, that I have a home in heaven, that I have right standing with God, that righteousness is on my account, not because I deserved it or earned it, but because he gifted it to me. That is the only way. 
So be certain of that. Don't play games with that. Be certain of that. But if, check, been there, done that, I am justified through my faith in Jesus, then take some lessons from the life of Abraham. My man on the whole, not perfectly, had, had some big missteps. But he lived a life of faith. He trusted in God's power. He trusted in God's promises. He knew deep down that with men, some things are impossible, but with God, everything is possible. And that I can trust him through it all. I can trust him when I'm older. I can trust him with where I live. I can trust him with my body. I can trust him to deliver. I can trust my heavenly father. So it is your job as an individual Christian to live a life of faith, because whatsoever is not a faith is sin. It is your job, men, if you have a family, we'll talk more about marriage and parenting and family next week, but to, but to lead your family by faith, to not be guilty of passive leadership where you just take whatever suggestion anybody throws out, whatever harebrained idea your coworker has or whatever idea your 17-year-old has on how things should operate and how things should flow, but to actually lead by faith and not just accept ideas passively because makes, that makes for a, a bad life. It is our job to learn from him and to say, let me be someone who can trust God with everything. And it's our job collectively as a church family to say, let us live by faith. I tell you all the time, as a pastor, one of my largest fears is that I would be guilty of small thinking and safe living, which is a creative way to say that I would be guilty of not living by faith. And I'm not talking about a lack of practicality. I'm not talking about doing things foolishly, but I am talking about living by faith. Right now, our church is in a growth zone for sure, but we're in a faith zone. A faith zone to say, hey, we believe that there's more that God has for us. We believe that there's more growth he wants for us. We believe there's more people he wants us to reach and more people that need to know Jesus and more people that need to be baptized and more mission trips that we need to take. Like we are in that zone as a church. And although it can be uncomfortable as a church, it is good for us to swim in faith waters day in and day out and to trust God and to say, you know what? Lord, whatever you got, we'll say yes. We will follow. We'll, we'll follow you off a bridge wherever you go. So may we be a people that truly it could be said of us, like at our funeral. Not only were they faithful, but they truly did live a life of faith. Their faith in an almighty God fueled who they were and what they did. And may our grandchildren and our children or our spouses or whoever speaks of us on that day be able to honestly articulate that we were people who lived lives of faith.